Welcome to the Metta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm so happy to be joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Mishi Jha. Mishi is a neuroscientist and associate professor of psychology at the University of Miami and the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative. She received her PhD from the University of California at Davis and received her postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University in Functional Neuroimaging. Mishi studies the neural bases of attention and the effects of mindfulness-based training programs on cognition, emotion, and resilience. With grants from the Department of Defense and several private foundations, she's been systematically investigating the potential applications of mindfulness training in education, corporate, elite sports, and the military context. In addition to her own published body of research, her work has been featured at TED.com, the World Economic Forum, New York Times, NPR, and more. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Mishi. Thank you so much. I will also say Mishi is not a late night person, which I am. And when I stay with her in Miami, which I get to do every couple of years, I go down there and teach. I torture her by keeping her up really late at night into the <laughs> early hours by discussing these very intense topics. <laughs> and she's so tired. She just wants to go to bed. Plus, she has two kids. So. She has to be attentive during the day. A little more. Trying to be. (laughs) So I really uh, usually start these conversations uh, by asking the person who's the guest, how did you come to your path of meditation? Uh, How did you come to your work? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in a family, a Hindu family, Indian family. And so growing up, I was very... It was very common to see my parents meditating or doing mara in the morning. Um, And it's just something that they did. It was just part of, like, everyday experience. But I really never thought it was something for me. And it was obvious that this is something that they benefited from. But it was after my first child was born, uh, when I was a professor, then at the University of Pennsylvania, that I really felt like I was kind of losing my grip with the demands of a stressful job, teaching classes, trying to run a a lab and have grants, that I just needed some way to feel better. And the whole journey with mindfulness actually came about through science. Uh, Richie Davidson, one of our colleagues, was uh, giving a talk at Penn. It had nothing to do with, it's actually before he was doing anything, uh, giving talks about meditation, but he showed these two brain images and kind of side by side, one that he said was a brain in an entirely negative mood. So people came to the lab, they were induced into a negative mood, and he showed brain scans from that. And then next to it, he had another image that was the brain scans of people that were induced to be in a positive mood, and they were obviously different looking. So at the end of his talk, I asked him, how do I get that brain, the negative one, to look like that brain, the positive one? More for personal curiosity than a research program, but he just said one word kind of, you know, kind of in a short way at the end of his talk. He just said meditation. And I just remember thinking like, 
that's a strange answer. Like, we wouldn't say that word here in this context, but he and I had a chance to talk about it later. And then I ended up just walking over to the Penn Bookstore, looking through the meditation section, and was very lucky because I picked up a book by Jack Cornfield mm-hmm. called Mindfulness for Beginners. And that just got me really interested in what mindfulness is, how I could start practicing. And that just took me on this journey, both from my personal development and then bringing it into the lab as an attention researcher, because it just seemed like I was almost perfectly positioned to be able to study this with all the tools I had about attention. So this is when you were still at Penn. Yeah, this is when I was still back at Penn. And is this uh, sort of the um, focus, the main focus of the work of your lab now at the University of Miami? It is. So now at the University of Miami, you know, after seeing that we could start getting a handle, a little bit of a handle on how it is that mindfulness training programs, things like mindfulness-based stress reduction or retreat practice uh, could impact attention, I started getting very interested in seeing how groups that weren't just living their regular lives with the typical ups and downs and stressors, how they would function with mindfulness, but really extreme cases. So one of the first projects was actually at Penn when we were looking at medical and nursing students. But then I got interested in kind of more extreme uh, cases where people couldn't escape threat and stress as part of their job, which was military service members. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so in moving to Miami, my work shifted more toward these intense time pressured, high demand professions, including, you know, firefighters and athletes and, and, um, and of course, military personnel that were continued and now expanding to military spouses. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there a particular form that, say, your research with the military is taking these days? <laughs> this is actually where you have been very helpful. Oh, this thank you. One our... <laughs> At one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. One of, my... <laughs> one of our late night conversations, you know, I basically proposed to you the problem or challenge of doing this work. So something like a mindfulness-based stress reduction program, which is so heavily studied and, and very nicely manualized, it's long. Yeah. Like, you know, between 20, 26 to up to 40 hours it can be of training over eight weeks. And essentially the, the grant was asking for me to get it down to about eight hours mm-hmm. over eight weeks. And that's a, that's a tough thing to do. And basically, you know, you were a little skeptical about it. So we, through our conversations, it really helped to think through, okay, if this is all the time you have, what would be the absolute most important things that you'd want to make sure people would know and would get exposed to, and then really treat it as an experiment, see what happens, see if it's, if we're able to do it, if we're able to get any benefits with that short of a time frame. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as a researcher, I was fine. If we found that eight hours was too short, then we'd increase the amount of time and make sure that we got some benefits that we could see, especially as it related to my kind of questions of interest, which were around seeing if attention improved. Mm-hmm. Because um, I think it would it would be interesting if you could talk about the kind of real-life beneficial consequences of having attention improve. Yeah, yeah. And that, but that's what's sort of interesting, is that now when we look at our project, and we've done now several studies, um, with military, different military cohorts, and they come back and all the objective data, all these attention tasks that we give them in the laboratory say, yes, they improved. And there's small but consistent improvements in their scores on attention tasks, memory tasks, even their self-reported attention looks better. But of course, we want to get inside that, those objective numbers and really 
see what the humanity is, how the human mm-hmm. experience changes. Mm-hmm. So we asked them, just tell us how you think that this has impacted your your life. And it's a pretty open-ended question, but most of the answers we get have nothing to do with their job and have everything to do with their personal life. So, you know, I can look at my wife and listen to her. Mm-hmm. I can, one of the more recent ones that I was really touched by was a project we did with, um, with these elite warriors, special operations forces. And I, you know, I was kind of hoping I'd hear something really cool about some downrange mission they had to do, but uh, this this uh, service member wanted to tell me or shared with us that it was being able to be at his daughter's ballet recital mm-hmm. and watch the expression on her face and feel the pride and, and joy that he had well up and also her sense of love that he was in the audience with her mm-hmm. and for her. And I, I was really touched by that. So this notion of attention and these cold cognitive laboratory tasks, seeing it embodied in ways that allow people to show up to their lives is what makes it, to me, really interesting and compelling and makes me even more interested in continuing to pursue this work. And I remember you discussing um, an increase in executive function and how you felt that one consequence of that is that there wouldn't be kind of that sudden, impulsive, fearful kind of actual killing, you know, when, oh, when yeah, one is just overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, one of the more recent studies we did, we found that uh, this task that we had given, this laboratory task where all you do is you see these numbers come on the screen, you press a button every time you see a number, except when the number is three, you know, so it's your, and threes happen really infrequently. So they're pressing, 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 their mind wanders, all of a sudden a three shows up and they press to it. So, you know, and then that's an obvious error. It's not mm-hmm. a mystery whether there was a three on the screen. And they know it. They kind of, you know, will react to that like, oh, darn, you know, or something like that. That very simple and almost neutral sounding task is akin to a lot of these shoot, no shoot, no shoot drills. So what they're actually, and people have done these studies uh, just in, in psychology labs where they will have these simulated environments where they're supposed to be able to tell between friend and foe because uh, friendly fire instances or, or really civilian casualties are just a real problem, obviously, that they're concerned about and the military is concerned about. So finding that they would press less often to the three or react more carefully when, when they have to make these very difficult decisions of who they're dealing with um, really translates into some battlefield behaviors that are more discerning, less reactive, and hopefully will result in you know, less bad outcomes. Yeah, because you certainly don't need me to tell you that the work is very controversial. And that, you know, there's <laughs> at any hour of the day, you know. And Absolutely, that, um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, so I'm sort of pairing in my mind what you just said about there being, I mean, we have a military, that's the truth of this country. And there being, you know, fewer kind of horrible instances of, say, massacres. And uh, compared with the kind of, um, you know, cute term that it goes by, like the mindful sniper, you know, and sort of seeing, well, what is the actual consequence of maybe this training? Right. All the times that people learn skills that prevent them or, or protect them against making impulsive, reactive decisions. And, um, you know, just say that, that, Entering into this work, I mean, I I was born in the town that Gandhi's from. Mm-hmm. I mean, ahimsa and pacifism are sort of like run through my core. Mm-hmm. Yet at mm-hmm. some point, 
you know, I was at, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, actually, right near us in Amish country, uh, a veteran had gone into a schoolhouse and killed a whole bunch of, mm. of children. It was somebody who was deeply suffering from PTSD. And I just got that feeling of like, what can I possibly do as mm-hmm. a civilian researcher to help? What can I possibly do? And it was obvious to me that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to change the reality that we were not only do we are a country with the military, but that we're a country that is an active military conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we have all these people going through cycle after cycle of being deployed, coming back, being deployed, coming back, who are suffering. And that suffering is not just seen upon return, but must also be happening in the work that they're doing over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's some way we could offer them skills so that they would be more discerning, less reactive, and even grow the capacity for compassion and understanding as mm-hmm. sort of the, the real goals, it would serve them not only in their work as a, as a warrior, but their ease of returning back to, mm-hmm. to civilian life. So it really was this sense of like, what could I possibly do? And then thinking, oh, okay, I have the skills to really understand attention. Attention is actually known to be, executive control attention is known to be at the root of things like emotion regulation Mm -hmm. and perspective taking and ethical decision making. I mean, this is not just some cold cognitive system, but it actually is the workhorse for all of these really complex functions. Mm -hmm. And we should just see if we can strengthen these and help to help soldiers, help mm-hmm, service mm-hmm. members um, make fewer errors that they're going to regret for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. As will society in general, because it's so awful. Um, tell me about the general you've been working with. <laughs> yeah, so that was the other thing I was going to say, is that in addition to just um, you know, service members in general, and you know, you you said it, the mindful sniper, this idea yeah. that I don't even really understand what that means. I mean, right. it's essentially some notion that People are blindly killing without any regard for their for their purpose. And my my sense from actually dealing with service members is this whole notion of what they have to do is not lost on them. Mm-hmm. They have there's no question that they have an ethical code mm-hmm. that they know what to do. They know the rules of engagement. What we if if we as a society put them in those positions, that's our decision as a society to do that. But mm-hmm. you know, so it's not like they don't know the ethical way to behave. They're actually trying to align with what they their training and the rules of their training um, suggest. But unfortunately, high stress, high demand, threatening situations can really make people lose a sense of their own ethical code. It's, it's their working memory just can't hold it. Mm-hmm. So we want to have some way to protect those very brain resources that can help people hold their, their ethical code. Um, not just in battle, but actually related to the general you were asking me about in the context of building peace. So most recently, I was this, the, the, one of the people that allowed us to actually start our work in the military, who was then a colonel and now is a general, General, general Walter Pyatt. He was uh, just deployed to Iraq this past summer, and his job was peace building. So Iraq was having their elections. Now we're to the point where there's going to be withdrawal of the multinational force. And he was the leader of this multinational land force. Um, and through our, and we ended up having a lot of communication over the, um, over this summer. And, you know, I would get a note from him. I, I mean, it, we were obviously, we've known each other for a long time, but somehow I would get notes from him that I just didn't have the words to respond to. So at one point I got a note that said something like, on the Syrian border. You know, had a three-hour helicopter ride, practiced the entire journey. Mm. Things are really intense. And it was kind of like, 
what do I say in response to this? First of all, the fact that he's practicing as he's approaching whatever he has to deal with once he lands is a really good sign. Mm-hmm. So I ended up sending him other people's words, including yours. And it really helped, you know, just being able to send um, the words of wise teachers on core pieces of wisdom, including not only remembering to have um, compassion and concern for others, but to actually include yourself in that. Mm-hmm. So you actually ended up in those emails often, and and we and he I gave him your book too, mm-hmm. the loving kindness That's book. Great. And it was really interesting to see in what ways this showed up as he was deployed, because now you know he wasn't. This wasn't a battle. This was, and I was kind of grateful, like, okay, this is going to be interesting because um, he's trying to actually. He always says, you know, war doesn't end in peace, mm-hmm. and all the forces that led to the situation they're in now are so fragile, so vulnerable, and volatile that it could essentially destabilize the possibility for peace. So what he said over the course of these, you know, many weeks of communication was that the mindfulness practice that he was doing really helped him um, have a stability and an open-heartedness so that he could not only listen to other people, or as he said, you know, I could, I could really seek to understand before demanding to be, a, to be understood. And that kind of orientation, I thought, was just so powerful mm-hmm. and something that we don't really think about as what a warrior or a general be, would be asked to do, but, but there he was. And I was just grateful that he had something he could lean on to support his ability to do that. It's really fantastic. And it reminds me of I had a pen pal for a while who was an active service member in Iraq and um, who came to me through, you know, uh, writing to Tricycle Magazine and asking for if there was somebody who could guide his practice. And they gave it to me. And and he got you? He got me, yeah. (laughs) Well, they sent it to me, and I thought, who should I send it to? And I thought, I'm keeping him. You know, and it was it was the kind of thing I think I felt a lot of what you were feeling like. What do I say about listening to sound when it's that sound? You know, mm-hmm. like and, uh, uh, it's kind of amazing. Um, and it's always good, I think, for all of us to be reminded that people are people, uh, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, that they're still people, um, and that uh, we all want this you know, to be a better world and, and what do we have to contribute to toward that end? Um, yeah. It's kind of, kind of amazing. Um, do you use the word compassion? With him, I certainly did. With the general, I certainly did. In our practices with um, soldiers, we, we found that that's something we build to. We start with more connection as the mm-hmm. word. And it's connection toward your teammate, you know, your battle buddy. Mm-hmm. And there's no question that you would do anything for this person and, mm-hmm. and you would want to make sure that the safety and well being for this person was held um, very strongly. And then to kind of slowly guide building out from that. Um, so yeah, we've 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 used the term connection, but but very clearly we're talking about practices that are essentially loving kindness practices. Mm-hmm. And it's been an interesting. And most most of the service members haven't had an issue with it. They they actually kind of like it. It's different from the rest of the series. So the rest of the the weeks are essentially kind of a, a standard mindfulness course where we start out with focus practices, then we go to uh, body sensations, thoughts, then move to open monitoring, same idea, and then end with this connection 
practice and, and most uh, appreciated as a series. But the reaction from military spouses when we offer mm-hmm. the same program has been different, actually, not as warm. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had a lot more, I would say, questioning about it and difficulty with it. And so we're still trying to figure out what's the best way to kind of introduce mm-hmm. these practices to different communities where it seems really counter to the way that and, – and in such a short time frame. Yeah. You know, because the time pressure becomes another issue. It's like, well, if we had another – Four weeks, I probably could help unpack this. Well, there's a possibility. <laughs> right. Let's think you know, about and it that. It could be part of a, a sequence, <laughs> yeah, right? So if you yeah. do the first one, that's more like the intro level and you want to do more, then yeah. now let's dive deeper into this. But, you know, this is the thing about working in a grants context. If yeah, there's yeah. no evidence from the metrics that the funders want to see change, that there's benefit, the chances of getting another funded project right, to explore right. it further are less well, yeah. or zero. So... Uh, have you found more resistance amongst the military spouses? And uh, do you have you have a gender mix in terms of spouses? No. Well, yes, there's some of it. What of a gender mix? But really, in this last project, it was all women. Mm-hmm. So um, that the most recent project in which we saw this kind of consistent feedback that that there was questioning about that last week. They just mm-hmm. thought it was an odd week. Mm-hmm. Like, why do I care about connection? I wanted to learn about you know focus and mm-hmm. monitoring mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. watching my thoughts. I don't want to now have to think about somebody I can't restrict my focus to one person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so yeah you know that and actually we had done a few other projects where compassion was more central compassion and loving kindness practices were more central we did one project this was in in, um, collaboration with my you know dear friend Margaret Cullen Mm -hmm. who developed the program so it was mindfulness and compassion it was 24 hours with that kind of time we saw really good um, interest and uh, capacity to do the practices and good feedback on, on its benefits and, mm-hmm. and good benchmarks that actually changed with regard to things like self-compassion and mood and stress levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had more than half the people drop out because they just couldn't spend 24 hours with us. Mm-hmm. So it's such a tricky thing of like doing it with this time pressure, yet allowing for practices that can be understood and and supported in the way that we'd want to mm-hmm. support them. Mm-hmm. Well, I can almost sense, you know, like how problematic, how intricate it would be, you know, because I mean, my experience, uh, which is not at all research based, you know, with working with uh, military people or military spouses or parents, um, is that the, you know, the pain, the potential pain is so huge. And um, the speed at which you have to go to avoid thinking about that is pretty fast. And especially I've worked with, you know, with people whose children have been injured and or mm-hmm. partner has been injured and badly injured. And, um, you know, to sort of stop and feel that fully is a lot. And and there's a lot about making it all work, you know, getting the benefits, getting, getting the situation right and um, not having it get worse even than it is. And uh, so there's an awful lot of speed and motion and not thinking about yourself or thinking even, you know, about the person who was um, but, you know, what you have to do going forward. So it's, it's a lot. It is. It is a lot. And, and you know, initially when we were doing these, uh, when we started out this work, a lot of um, clinical cha- clinical issues and challenges can come up for people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not a clinician. I'm a neuroscientist. So for me, it became also like, I want to do this. Whatever we do, we have to do responsibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the question was, who should be the trainers? If we're going to try to scale up, 
the access to mm-hmm. this. Uh, having other spouses do it may not be the right strategy since mm-hmm. they don't have the cool the tools to actually help mm-hmm. these clinical uh, situations come up. So we ended up training uh, a group of behavioral health providers mm-hmm. that were working with military service members. We did a, about a hundred hour training. Uh, with them, they seemed to love it, and they were starting to already use it in their clinical practice. Uh, but then, unfortunately, they disengaged from the project, so we just couldn't really mm-hmm. track what happened when they delivered it. Um, yeah, so it's a tricky. It, the compassion piece ends up being a little bit more tricky with the with the time constraints now. But I want to do exactly what you just said, which is if if this first step of the introduction to mindfulness is found to be beneficial then let's have it be part of a series where they can continue practicing and mm-hmm. learn other practices that could even support them and mm-hmm. allow them to grow in different ways. And uh, just tell me for a moment about the, like the firefighters and people who are first responders and um, non-military people who also face, you know, tremendous stress and trauma and so on. Yeah. I mean, I think that the common element is that they're in these high demand time pressured situations and you know now the US Forest Service is rolling out uh, MBSR they've got just a huge number of people that a lot of firefighters and we see you know what's just happened with the fires in California I mean yeah. there's a huge need to support them well because mm-hmm. they are under a tremendous amount of of uh, demand and stress so in many ways it's very similar where they're they're showing up they're coming in um already pretty depleted with regard to their core attention mood etc and that, um, you know, with mindfulness training, essentially it becomes like a, a dose-response effect. Mm-hmm. So people that show up to the class, just showing up doesn't seem to be doing much. But if you, if you do a daily practice, and we ask them to do 15 minutes a day to keep it mm-hmm. kind of reasonable, mm-hmm. um, those that do more benefit more. And uh, the benefits right now we're seeing are things like self-reported resilience mm-hmm. and um, working memory, this ability to maintain and manipulate information. Um, so the good news is that they're, they like it. I mean, they're, they're able to actually take it on and those that, and, and seeing that the more they invest their time in doing it, the more they benefit, I think is great. The challenge of course is having their whole workplace context support it, right? So it's not just this project mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it's over with. How do you integrate it now so that it's available to them? Like mm-hmm. we have a, a meditation room in the firehouse yeah. you know, where you can just go and, and do these practices is there for you, or you're given time during your duty day to actually seriously mm-hmm. do this. Um, I think those kind of challenges to integrate it, adopt it formally into what these high high stress professions require of people is my goal. Like I really want to help see that happen. It's really, and I have to say, this is still kind of astonishing to me when you say the U.S. Forest Service is rolling this out. All I can think about is coming back from India in 1974. And, and telling people I'm a meditation teacher, and them saying, "What? You know, like, did you meet the Beatles when you were over there? Oh boy, you know, like, or you know, like, I mean, nobody knew the word mindfulness. It was such an odd thing. I know. Well, that's why it's actually, you know, and if you didn't do what you did to come here and help uh, introduce it, we wouldn't be in this position. So I'm just so grateful to you. No, that thank you. you. But it's bridged a, it back over it's so we astonishing. could have something to offer. It is it is kind of astonishing. Uh, and, but and, and I just came back from the UK where we if we look at the um, you know what's happening in the UK. With the, did you go to Parliament? I did. Yeah, yeah. that was really interesting too, yeah, to be in yeah. the. I mean, as an Indian woman, I thought it was particularly interesting to be in the UK Parliament. 
invited to speak about mindfulness in the military. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you have these yeah. moments where it's like, wow, this is not what I ever expected in my, in my professional yeah. journey. No, it's fantastic. It's like, uh, it's like a dream world. You know, how did that happen? And not that it's a perfect world by any means. You know, we all have a lot of work to do, but that these tools are at least being looked at is an extraordinary thing. Yeah, yeah. So when you see it, when you hear it, um, what makes what what? How do you connect the dots? How does it make sense that this is now having a proliferation and uh, is accepted in all these different sectors of society? You know, I don't know. It's like I asked John Kabat-Zinn once we were together at some conference. I said, "It can't be just the science and the research," and he said, "No, I think it's just the science and the research." <laughs> you know, it's like uh, maybe we're so stressed that we're desperate. I don't know, like. Um, uh, but yeah. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that when we got the first set of grants with the military, I think that after, at that point, it had been seven years of continuous combat. Yeah. Uh, that the U.S. military was sort of like, well, let's try something new, you know, and that sort of allowed us to to start introducing this because what they had been doing had never worked. But in the history of this country, the military had never been asked to do this continuous level of mm-hmm. Um, you know, deployment in a kind of an unending or undefined way. So I I think there is something to that. It's like we're now at the tipping point where there's just like we're throwing our hands up and saying, okay, fine, I'll try something that I might not normally do. Mm -hmm. But I I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't want to over... overemphasize the science. I'm just... When I think about it, I do think that the timing is great because in the 70s, we just didn't have the tools Mm -hmm. to have people that were practitioners or taking any kind of mindfulness, you know, whether it was going on a retreat or practicing daily, just put them in a brain scanner and see what happens. Like mm-hmm. that's just, we just didn't have that. And now, you know, from my office, like 20 yards from my lab is a brain scanner. So the ease with which we're able to actually ask these questions is just totally at a different, at a different level. So I was just, as you know, uh, um, teaching a retreat with uh, Ram Dass in Hawaii and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and, I said at one point, Joseph, Jack, and I were up on the stage together, and I said, uh, as far as I know, the three of us were the first meditators ever studied in the mm-hmm. States, um, and it was long before fMRIs, and uh, Jack Engler, Ken Wilbur, and um, Dan Brown came up to the Insight Meditation Society and gave us Rorschach tests and things like that. Uh, it was really very funny looking back. Um, and... Uh, I think the most interesting person that they studied was one of our teachers, this woman, Deepa Ma. And um, they said she did something with the Rorschach that very few people other than the occasional shaman will do, which is she made one continuous story out of all the ink blots. Um, so it was like wow. a cohesive narrative throughout it all. But, uh, you know, the rest of us, I think, were a little more tedious. But um, <laughs> uh, So... Uh, the science is interesting because some, pe- of course, now there's a backlash. You know, there's there are people saying that uh, it's not the science per se; it's the media usage of the science or interpretation of the science that um, has promised a lot more than any modality can deliver. So there's that happening. Um, yeah, and it's such early days, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it's like if we think about the number of studies that have been done on just the relationship between exercise and physical health mm-hmm. in the last 30 years, it's like 300,000 plus. 
And if you look at the number with mindfulness, it's like more like 10,000. So mm-hmm. it's just so not, we're not there yet. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, all these things are part of the growing pains of a new enterprise. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in addition to having these better tools, we also have this understanding that the human brain has this capacity to change, reorganize, and mm-hmm. grow new neurons throughout lifespan, which gives us a lot of hope that there might be ways we could actually do this to help people stay healthy and be more resilient. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where this fits in nicely. It's like you, you, we already have this cultural understanding about training the body, but we don't have a cultural understanding that the mind can be exercised in a way for daily, mm-hmm. you know, better wellness. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that this is, that's where we'll go, is that we'll get that understanding, that we'll, we'll get a better, you know, like my dream scenario is that just like that you go to the Surgeon General site, right, or the CDC, it says you need 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, you know, five times a week. Like mm-hmm. there's some prescription that's given, and of course, a lot of options. If you, you can go for a walk, you can swim, you can, but there's some general understanding of like what the bare minimum is to just keep everything working okay. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that's going to look like, but I hope that there's some prescription that's given as a suite of options mm-hmm. for us to think about and take seriously every day. That'd be extraordinary. And uh, one more question before yeah. I let you go after a full day's work. <laughs> um, uh, you know, of course, as as you know, the early, early studies, largely, I think, because of John Kabat-Zinn's brilliance and form, formulizing the package, you know, and having it be so replicable and so on. Uh, the early studies have all pretty much been around mindfulness. And so I'm wondering about compassion meditation and sort of the lay of the land right now, as that seems to be getting more and more prominent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there are now um, really good programs that are focused on compassion in a kind of similar eight-week format that are going to allow us, you know, the manualized as well, allow mm-hmm. us to see what happens. Because I think the key for scientists to bring into the lab is that they kind of have some instruction manual to follow of what to offer people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say even more so that this is early days for compassion research, but um, that we're going to we, we're going to be able to see what happens, and it'll be you know there's, there's starting to be some studies that are showing some interesting. Uh, similarities and distinctions between mindfulness training and, and compassion-focused practices. And and also, like, where does one stop and the other one begin mm-hmm. in the kind of at the end of the, at the end of the day? You know, what aspect of mindfulness fully has aspects of a compassionate orientation, whether it's even the moment that you notice your mind wander, not mm-hmm. screaming at yourself mm-hmm. and actually saying, oh, there it goes, and coming back in mm-hmm. some kind of accepting and non-aggressive way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, you know, so, so, so understanding the boundary conditions is going to be interesting as well. So what, when you say there's some interesting distinctions, uh, even given that, of course, I know that there's a blending, you know, on many levels, like what kind of distinctions are being seen? Well, you know, I mean, Right now, the question is really around, the initial set of questions was around what's the difference between empathy and compassion? Mm-hmm. And even beginning with Tanya Singer's mm-hmm. work in that mm-hmm. area is that what's the difference? We know we talk about, you know, there is some understanding, especially in the medical, in the healthcare field around um, compassion fatigue and getting an understanding that, no, actually what we're talking about there isn't actually the way the traditions have talked about compassion. The key mm-hmm. ingredients are actually quite different in the mm-hmm. way that it's um, practiced. 
and how can we see differences in, in at least brain circuitry that's activated by those. So I think initially it's just to try to parse those apart, and then I think we're going to be able to see kind of how do things change as you go from, and what, how does the trajectory work? So um, do you, how much initial grounding or foundational understanding of mindfulness practice do you need before you can actually move on? Is it, is it the more advanced practice? And I mean, my experience is that it is. And, and just from my understanding in conversations with you, mm-hmm. it makes sense to have the initial stability before you'd mm-hmm. move on to these other types of practices. But in many cases, it's uh, programs may not mm-hmm. offer that trajectory. So, um, I mean, I just think that it's the beginning of, of some good work in that topic. And, and, I don't feel like I have a clear sense of what the um, what the answers are yet. Like, mm-hmm. how is it different? How is it similar? Um, but at least we see ways we could actually explore it, which is exciting. I think that's great. I mean, one of the uh, it's not the more recent times I've seen Richie Davidson, but a couple of years ago we were together in Milwaukee, and uh, he he was speaking at this um, dinner party, and he said something about. Uh, and I think he was teasing me at the same time, you know, taking the opportunity to tease me. He said something like, uh, recent research was showing that just nine minutes of mindfulness practice a day and only seven minutes of loving kindness a day would change your brain. You know, so it's sort of like, since I'm so identified with loving kindness and the eyes of the world, it was like, hey, you know, follow her. She'll she'll, she'll carve out two extra minutes. We can do something else. Uh, it was really cute, you know. So then I said to him, I don't know that one should go for the bare minimum, you know. Like, which is a little reductionistic, you know, it's like, oh, my brain is changing. Oh, good. Right, right. And, you know, I'm sure it was, you know, it's a, it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice set of things to say, but everything changes our brain. This conversation has changed our brains. Yeah. Listening to this conversation changes brains. So the idea that the brain is impacted by experience, we already know. Yeah. It's just how do we hone in on, on developing and cultivating some skills that we can take with us when we're not in this context anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, and I agree. Like, if seven minutes of practice does something, then take the extra extra minutes and really benefit. Right. Great. <laughs> That's great. Look at this. We're talking in a normal hour. What's up with us? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's not even after 10. Oh, good. <laughs> this is great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're incredibly busy, and uh, as am I. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's so delightful to, to talk to you, so. I agree. Thank you so much for the opportunity to to talk about this stuff. And thank you for everything you do. I'm so, so grateful that you're in the world. Thank you. (laughs) It it means a lot to me to even just have this opportunity to chat. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. To learn more about Amishi's inspiring work, you can visit her website at www.amishi.com. It's A-M-I-S-H-I. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.